Bible with me and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a a number of passages this morning. Uh, This is the one we'll look at most often though. Uh, Next Sunday I'll start uh, preaching through the book of Acts. Um, So prepare yourself for that. Uh, Read through it this week. Um, Get familiar with the turf. We're going to be there a while. And um, Ben is also going to take us through Jonah uh, periodically throughout the year. So uh, both of those things are coming. Today, though, we're going to be finishing uh, the series on the Lord's Supper. And before we do, I just want to read. I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, but I'm going to read uh, a portion from Luke chapter 20. uh, Chapter 22, Jesus says uh, in verse 17 of Luke 22, that he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, thank you that Jesus, your Son, gave his life for us. that he was put forward as a propitiation, a wrath satisfier in our place. And that the death he died under your wrath is where we find salvation and through our union with him his death was our death and no longer do we have to fear the wrath of God being poured out on us who believe And in the same way, when you raised him from the dead three days later, his life became ours. When you raised him and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, you raised us with him. And we are grateful that the eternal life, the taste of eternal life, that we experience now through our union with him, will not end it will last forever and one day we will experience it in new bodies would you please use even some of the practical things that we'll be talking about today on the Lord's Supper to foster a love once again for the gospel Jesus 
drank the cup in our place. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So it's been a couple of weeks, so uh, maybe some review would help. Uh, we've actually, uh, we've, we've already looked at the, the origin and the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And we saw from the Gospels that the Lord's Supper it came from Jesus and also how Jesus uh, fulfilled and transformed the Passover. Uh, Passover defined Israel at one point as uh, the Old Covenant community, and as long as you identified with the Lamb's blood, you were freed from your bondage, you were freed from uh, death, and, and you were also in a new covenant with, in, a, in, a, in a covenant with God. So the, the meal, that Passover meal, it shaped the Old Covenant community. Jesus' death then fulfilled all that the, the Passover pointed to. Uh, through Jesus' blood, we, we experience the ultimate exodus. God delivers us from eternal death. He delivers us from bondage to sin. He then brings us into a new covenant with himself. The Lord's Supper then becomes the meal of the new covenant community. It shapes our identity around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We then asked why we take the Lord's Supper. What, what was the purpose? And we, we had four purposes that we saw. Uh, we take the Lord's Supper to proclaim and remember the, the past, uh, God's past deliverance in Christ. Uh, we also take to participate in the gospel's benefits, uh, the, the benefits that come to us in the new covenant. We also take it to, uh, to renew our commitment to one another. Uh, it's where, it's 1 Corinthians 10, 17, where the many become one. And we eat the supper also to anticipate Christ's return in glory. And these purposes then shaped how we come to the supper. We come to the Lord's Supper looking backwards to remember what God achieved for us in Christ. We come to the table looking upwards to receive the benefits of the, the new covenant, like forgiveness of sins. Uh, we come looking around at one another who are gathering at the table uh, to see all of the people who are sharing in Christ with us and what that means for our relationships. We come looking forward uh, in expectation of Jesus' return. And we come looking within to see if our lives are genuinely reflecting the gospel. All of us are unworthy, but these five uh, looks, if we want to call them, they help see if, if, uh, if we are coming in a worthy manner with, with humility, with, with repentance, with deeper dependence on Christ, and with a longing for Him to come back for us. So to this point, we've asked three questions. Where did the Lord's Supper come from? Why do we do it? And how should we come? Uh, today, we're answering two more questions. Who and when? Who should take the Lord's Supper? And when should we do it? Now, before answering those questions, let me say a few things. Um, many of you, especially of our, uh, our members, uh, know that, that one reason we entered a suppers on, on the Lord's uh, on we entered a supper we entered a series on the Lord's Supper uh, is that the elders deserve uh, desired to, to to serve you the supper more often. We we wanted to 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 uh, participate in that in that blessed time together more often. 
but as we talked with you, it seemed that all of us could benefit from, uh, from broader instruction on the Lord's Supper. So we did this series, and we're planning to talk with you further about that in the February members meeting. So please bring any further questions or input you may have to that meeting. Uh, we want to discuss it with you further before we make any adjustments to our, our practice. Uh, Something else is that uh, what we'll cover today isn't as explicitly laid out in Scripture, meaning uh, there's no direct command on who and when should take the supper, but we can draw inferences uh, from from other places in Scripture that are are much clearer. So I'll be drawing from a a number of those passages to make a point and, and just prepare yourself to kind of hold them in your mind all at once to see how they inform one another, and uh, I think you'll see they reveal some pretty clear patterns to imitate in our celebration of the supper. And, and one more thing is that we are addressing something super specific here, I mean the Lord's Supper in, in the local church, and so sometimes when you focus on something very specific for a long time, you kind of lose sight of the bigger picture and how it fits together, uh, and so I want to just speak to that for just a minute. Um, consider how the Lord's Supper affects discipleship, theology, life, and mission. Celebrating the Lord's Supper is a matter of basic discipleship, a matter of obedience to Christ. It's, it's a matter of following His words when He says, Do this in remembrance of Me. Uh, we do this to remember Christ. That, that remembrance isn't just a, a mere recollection of facts. It's, it's an actual, uh, it's a meal where the past comes into the present. It re-enters our present to shape our identity around Christ's self-giving sacrifice. That, that's a matter of discipleship. A matter of what our lives should look like in taking up our own cross. The Lord's Supper is also important for theology. Uh, Take the doctrine of Christ, for example. Uh, One of the major concerns in church history was was whether and how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. If Christ is present in the Supper, how should we say He's present so that we we don't undermine His once-for-all finished sacrifice? And also... How can we say he's present in such a way that doesn't compromise his inseparable human and divine nature? Or take one's doctrine of salvation. Is the Lord's Supper something that God uses to infuse grace to someone to maintain their state of justification, as the Catholic Church teaches? Or is it a sign by which our faith is strengthened as we keep looking to Christ in the gospel? One's doctrine of the church is also affected. If the supper is a new covenant meal, shouldn't it be only uh, the new covenant people who participate? How how does it connect with, with baptism and church membership and church discipline? So the Lord's Supper is important and, and, has, and it's connected to our theology. These are important questions to answer. The Lord's Supper is also important for the Christian life. 
You know, one of the big emphases that we've noticed is, is what the Lord's Supper says about our relationship to one another. So if you look there in 1 Corinthians 10 at verse uh, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's, it's the meal where the many become one. We're reminded of how Christ's death shapes our attitudes towards one another. Uh, and, and how we, we must show grace and, and forgiveness and, and patience and, and pursue unity with each other. As Christ has done with us. And that becomes really crucial for our mission as a church as well. I mean, think of Jesus' words in, in John 17, verse 23. He says that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So when you have all kinds of ethnicities and people from all kinds of, of cultures and various backgrounds and who were enslaved to various kinds of sins and, and they all and, and God rescues all of these people and He brings them and He sits them down at one table, sharing in one meal together, the world is shocked. The world is stumped over the depth of, of how such different people with different backgrounds, with different proclivities that irritate one another, they're stumped on how we could share in such a meal together with thanksgiving and joy and unity. The only, thing, the only thing that makes sense of it all is Christ. Not our political ideology. Not our shared interests. Not present circumstances. Not social status or ethnicity. But Christ. I mean, when we eat together at the supper, we become a visible testimony to the world. We picture for the world what the, that the cross really does save sinners, that it really does bring us out of our self-righteousness, and the Holy Spirit really does smash our idols and our pride, and He builds a people up in love. So the goal of Christian unity, which, which gets embodied at the Lord's Supper, is actually for worldwide witness. This is why uh, some of the uh, confessions of the church throughout history have said that the, the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, these things are what make the church visible. They, they become visible markers so the world can see the body that Christ has saved. It's no wonder that the Lord's Supper is also proclamation. It pictures the power of the gospel as we eat together. So don't miss this bigger picture as as we now tackle some very practical questions. So question number one that I asked is, who should take the Lord's Supper? Who should take the Lord's Supper? Uh, you might notice that when we take the Lord's Supper together, we usually, what's called fencing the table, we set up some boundaries uh, that we think reflect biblical patterns, uh, which protect some from taking it in an unworthy manner. Uh, and so drinking judgment on themselves uh, we usually say, if you're a member of Redeemer Church or a baptized member in good standing with another gospel-preaching church, you're welcome to eat with us. That statement summarizes our convictions on, on who should take the supper. 
First of all, it's most clear that only believers should take the Lord's Supper. Only believers. Believers in union with Christ. Part of this conviction comes from what the Lord's Supper grew out of. Uh, the Passover meal was, was restricted to the Old Covenant community. It defined the Old Covenant community. So also the Lord's Supper is restricted to the New Covenant community. Uh, the Lord's Supper defines the New Covenant community. So if we ask, you know, well then, who makes up the New Covenant community? Uh, Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8 make it very clear. It spells out the New Covenant for us. It's those who have been cleansed by Jesus' blood. It's, it's those who, whose sins have been forgiven in Christ, who have the law of God written on their hearts, those who know God. This seems to be the, the working assumption whenever the Lord's Supper comes up in the, in the early church. So take 1 Corinthians 11 there before you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. Jesus himself, he makes the supper a new covenant meal, right? When he says... Um, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a new covenant meal for the new covenant people, people who belong to that covenant. Or uh, take 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the supper is for those who share in the benefits of Christ's death. Look also at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 28 and 29. It says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So discerning the body there is making sure that our lives are genuine to to Christ's body given for us. Okay, so only believers can can walk in that way. Only those who've been rescued out of their sins and have the Holy Spirit, those who are freed from that bondage. Another consideration is that the Lord's Supper is for those who delight in proclaiming Jesus' death and who can't wait for Jesus to come back. Uh, That's clear in verse 26 of chapter 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The you there is the church, the new covenant community who loves to preach the gospel and can't wait for Jesus to come back. Now, some have simply left it there. And uh, uh, the, the supper is, is open to all believers no matter what. Sometimes this is called open communion. Uh, and, and, and in doing so, what that, what's happened is they've actually separated the new covenant meal, which is the supper, uh, from, its, from the new covenant initiation, which we call baptism. Okay, so that brings us to baptism. The Lord's Supper is a meal for those who identify with Christ and His new covenant in baptism. And you need to know that's not just a Baptist conviction. It's something shared by most major denominations throughout church history, even where convictions about baptism differ. 
like on whether to baptize infants. Baptism is still a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. Uh, the first consideration here is, again, to, to look at what the Lord's Supper grew out of. It grew out of the Passover meal. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 48 says that no uncircumcised person shall eat of the Passover. So under the Old Covenant, only those who were marked by physical circumcision uh, belonged to uh, the covenant and were allowed to participate in the Passover. And circumcision was a one-time act that, last, that had lasting significance. So if you had it, then you and your family, also under the Old Covenant, belonged to the covenant people. And, and then eating the Passover was then done repeatedly. So the circumcision is one time, then you eat the Passover repeatedly every year to remind yourself of the covenant you belong to and you once entered. When we come to the New Testament, though, physical circumcision is no longer what marks uh, God's people. So you get these texts in the New Testament, like Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but this is what counts, a new creation. So spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, the, the God makes you who wants couldn't stand to follow him. He now makes you a person who really wants to follow him. That's what counts. The spiritual circumcision is what marks God's people through our union with Christ. But that union with Christ, it goes on display through baptism. It goes public through baptism. And Paul makes this connection in Colossians chapter 2. If you want to look there, a couple letters over from 1 Corinthians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, he says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is to say, when Christ died, your old self died with him. Okay? Circumcision, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this as you're reading the Bible. It's not a pleasant thing to think about, right? It's intimate. It's gross. It's bloody. And that was the point all along. It was pointing to another day. Pointing to Christ and His intimate and bloody and gross cutting off on the cross. Christ cutting off in death fulfills what every prior cutting off and circumcision pointed to. So what Paul is bringing out here is that when Christ was cut off, your old sinful flesh was cut off with him. And then he makes this connection in verse 12 to baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, baptism points to our union with Christ by which we get the new heart. The blessing is of a new heart. So baptism becomes the public, visible sign that identifies us with Jesus and his new covenant blessings. So in this way, baptism becomes the initiation, the the oath that we take, the the public marker of entrance into Christ and his new covenant community. It's just part of becoming a Christian. Just like the Passover meal was limited to those who entered the covenant community through physical circumcision or visible circumcision, so also the Lord's Supper is limited to those who enter the new covenant community through visible baptism. That's, That's not to confuse faith with baptism or to say that baptism regenerates people. It's only to say that baptism initiates the Christian life in a public sense. It, it's, it goes public. You know, people cannot see a spiritual union with Christ. People cannot see forgiven sins. People can't see the new covenant bond that we, that we share with Christ. But Christ did intend for these invisible realities to become visible, to be displayed, to be pictured, and he intended them to go public in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Baptism is where our faith in Christ goes public. It's where we say goodbye to the old way of life and hello to the new life in Christ, like Romans 6 talks about. Lord's Supper is then the meal we keep celebrating to remind us of the covenant we entered. So baptism's like putting on the team jersey so you can play in the game. A few other things come into play here as well. The paradigm in the New Testament is that there's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian uh, after uh, Pentecost. The various counts of water baptism in Acts follow belief in the gospel. Since they follow belief in the gospel, that stresses its importance for all believers. Uh, When Paul and Peter write to the churches, the overriding assumption is that everybody knows what baptism is. Everybody knows the significance of their own baptism. So in his, uh, like we saw in Colossians a minute ago, he does it again in Romans 6, 1 Peter chapter 3 does the same thing when he relates their baptism to the floodwaters of Noah. God flooded the earth with his wrath. And he's saying by union with Christ, in Christ is where the the floodwaters of God's wrath dumped out on Christ in our place. Baptism corresponds to this. The assumption is that you all know what this means when you identified with Christ in baptism. In Acts chapter 18... Verse 8, we learn that uh, many of the Corinthians not only believed Paul when he shared the gospel with them, but they were also baptized. So we know from Acts that the Corinthian church was baptized. And then we come to a letter like Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, where he's talking to them about the Lord's Supper. The assumption, everybody's baptized. They know how the things connect. Also, there's, a, there's something to mention practically speaking. Uh, here with baptism. Having only baptized believers take the Lord's Supper goes hand in hand 
with the church discerning whether conversion is truly evident prior to a believer participating in the Lord's Supper. Delaying participation in the Lord's Supper until after baptism serves the professing believer by protecting them from taking the supper in vain should their profession of faith be false and not genuine. So it seems to go hand in hand with Paul exhorting believers to examine themselves before participating in the supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Would not the call to self-examination also include examining whether one has truly submitted to Christ's command to be baptized. At one point, uh, you know, we fence the table each, each sun- Sunday that we do take the Lord's Supper. And a father once, uh, who was visiting, who was once letting his kids take the Lord's Supper, uh, apart from baptism... And he once objected that, that uh, making baptism a prerequisite was simply legalism. Um, but I have to ask, is encouraging people to obey Jesus' command to be baptized legalism? Obedience to Christ is never legalism. We do it out of a love for him and what he's given and trusted to us. If a parent discerns that their child is saved, enough to have them share in the new covenant meal, (laughs) let's give them a team jersey to go with it. They should encourage the same child to follow through with baptism, which is one of the initial steps in making disciples. When the people asked Peter how to respond to the gospel in Acts chapter 2, he said, repent and be baptized. That's how the Lord added them to the new covenant community. We would be more than excited to walk with your children towards baptism. We have a a discipleship towards baptism outline curricula that we go through with them. Uh, and we emailed that to you a year ago. We, we'd love to, to uh, send it to you again. If you, if you want it, come talk to me. And maybe a further note for us parents is this. You know, I know how hard it may be sometimes you know, not to allow our child to participate in the Lord's Supper, but they need to, to see what not taking the Lord's Supper means. It means they're not yet part of the church. So use the Lord's Supper as an occasion to instruct them about the gospel and instruct them about God's people, uh, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to belong to His people. Help them see that just because they attend Redeemer does not mean they're part of the redeemed. They too must repent and be baptized and make Jesus their own. The same is true for any unbeliever who happens to To gather with us. The Lord's Supper powerfully illustrates how the benefits of Christ's death are not yet theirs. I mean, when the plate passes by and and they don't get to partake, it's a sign of the Christ that they are missing. It's a sign of the fellowship in the church that they are missing. And then we call them to repent and to be baptized and to join the rest of us who don't deserve to be united in Christ don't deserve to, to eat here. 
Moving on to one last point here, there's, there's also the question of being a member in good standing with a local church. In good standing basically means you're not under church discipline. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, that we shouldn't even eat with someone who's living in sin without repentance. And it's quite likely that Paul has the Lord's Supper in mind since he mentions Christ being the Passover lamb in chapter 5, verse 7, and he's telling them, when you come together, cast this man out. But even if it's not, the point is clear that we cannot pretend to have fellowship at the table with someone refusing to follow the Lord of that table. And yet, boasting about it as, as if he is, boasting about his life as if he is. This is one reason why the last step in church discipline is sometimes called excommunication. Communion. Excommunication. The church is publicly barring someone from participating at communion at the Lord's Supper. So it's a very sobering and a very grievous uh, action that we should take that we should not take lightly. Um, this is why uh, why why many in church history have often connected the Lord's Supper to belonging and being accountable to a local church. You don't have to do membership like we do here, um, but you need to be accountable to a local church. Submission to Christ and His Word took place within the context of a local church. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity in the New Testament. Even in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, we saw that the Lord's Supper is the place where the many become one, right? So the visible ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, mark off the visible church. That it's true that the Holy Spirit joins us to the universal body, the invisible body of Christ at conversion, but it's also true that we become one local, visible body of Christ through eating the Lord's Supper together. But whenever someone's unrepentant lifestyle calls into question their conversion to faith, the church must act accordingly to preserve the gospel and the church's well-being. And though we hope it never comes for anyone, it may mean excommunication. Accountability to a local church and church discipline find themselves linked to the Lord's Supper and, uh, and the covenant that the Lord's Supper is calling us to abide in. So that answers who? Only believers, only those who can say they've been baptized, and only those submitting to Christ in a local church. Let's now look at when. When should we take the Lord's Supper? Now, there's not much evidence in the New Testament for answering this question, so we've got to be very charitable in our judgments. Uh, But there seem to be a few pointers that suggest taking the Lord's Supper more often is better than relegating it to a forgotten meal on a Sunday evening service. Once a quarter. Like 
some of us probably, some context we some of us grew up in. Now, some will point to Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42, and Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 uh, says, And they devoted themselves, or they were continually devoting themselves, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then in Acts chapter 27, you get the same uh, type thing. It's just done on a Sunday. On the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread. So a, a very common and also a very early interpretation. When I say early, I mean second century church type early. Uh, is that the breaking of the bread here uh, must refer to the Lord's Supper. Uh, if it falls within a, a formal church gathering, I mean, it falls within a formal church gathering here. It, it happens on the first day of the week, Sunday. It's similar to the way Luke describes Jesus breaking bread at the Last Supper in his gospel. And Acts is part two of the gospel. It must be the Lord's Supper, they say. And so here are two examples of the early church taking the supper at least weekly. Perhaps, perhaps, but it's hard to tell for two reasons, at least. One, Luke uses the same language to refer to other common meals, like he does in chapter 2, verse 46 of Acts, where uh, it seems there that they're breaking bread daily in their homes. Uh, Number two... The Lord's Supper was usually celebrated in conjunction with a larger meal. Like, much like the Last Supper was. So, is it there? It may be, it may be included. It's just, we broke bread together and also we took the Lord's Supper sometimes. You just don't know. Uh, so, the Lord's Supper could be included in the breaking of bread. And if so, this may be one pointer that it was something they celebrated weekly, but it's not certain. A better pointer is 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, The Lord's Supper was celebrated by the church when they gathered as the church. Uh, So not something done one-on-one or in small groups, uh, but when they gathered as the church, as the church collective. Um, So you see this repeated throughout 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, where Paul uses this, when you come together, uh, in verse 17 or verse 18, when you come together as a church. And uh, then verse 20, verse 33 and 34, he does the same thing. And this same idea is used in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, this coming together, and it's a description of when the whole church was gathered for worship and for mutual edification. So likely they're they're Sunday gatherings. And that also fits with chapter 10, verse 16, where the Lord's Supper is the meal where the many members become one. So the many can't become one unless the many are gathered. Okay, so there's good indication that the early church 
took the supper whenever they gathered as the church. When did they gather as a whole church? Weekly on the Lord's day. So again, perhaps you've got to hold these all in your mind and run them together to, to, to see it. But there may be one more pointer, theological pointer, big picture pointer, that may be most significant. The nature of the supper determines the frequency. The nature of the supper determines the frequency. So if it's a mere symbol and just kind of a casual reminder of Christ's death, then I, then I could see how churches have, have moved to taking the supper less and less often. But what if it's much more than that? What if the, the, the supper is what we have seen it is over the last few weeks? It's the meal that shapes the identity of the new covenant people. It's the visible proclamation of the gospel that, that complements the verbal proclamation of the gospel. It's the meal where we're nourished by Christ as the gospel of Jesus' body given for us and His blood shed for us are explained once again. It's the place where Jesus' invitation to, to sit at His table in the kingdom it becomes very tangible as we all see each other sharing in this same meal together. It's the meal where the many become one, for we all partake of the one bread. It's where we come together as a church to examine ourselves. To examine how we're living with one another. And how much our relationships can, can further reflect the gospel pattern of self-giving love. It's not just a symbol. It's a sign. It's a prophetic sign that not only says Christ has defeated sin and death, but He is coming again to reclaim the whole world for Himself. I mean, when you put it like that, who wouldn't want to take the supper? Often. Now, it's true that some people fear that by taking the supper more often, it, it could become rote and, and routine. But we could say the same thing for the preaching of the Word. We could say the same thing for showing up here on Sunday. We could say the same thing about the prayers and, uh, and our fellowship and our singing of hymns. Any habit of grace can become routine. And when they do, it's a matter of the heart that needs evaluation, not the practice. We need to be praying for God to protect us from dullness of heart in everything we do. Everything we do often. We need to be crying out for God to fill us with the joy of the Holy Spirit every week. No matter what components may be added to our corporate gatherings or taken from our corporate gatherings from week to week. So here's what the elders are thinking. It's not that taking the supper monthly, as we've been doing, is sinful. If we do end up celebrating the supper more often, we'd see it as something where we're moving from good 
to better. Okay, so, so what we'll propose in the February members meeting is as a first step, taking the supper twice a month. That may be a good first step for us to, to take as a church. Our concern is not neglecting to give you something that's meant to bless you and to strengthen you. Taking it twice a month will also give those who served in the nursery on the first Sunday of the month an opportunity to take the supper again. Or those who were sick on one to take it again the next day and don't have to go two or three months missing this time together. So we can talk about, more, talk about that more in February. We want to be patient with this and, and with you. In the meantime, be praying for us and for the body to be united however we move forward. And also consider whatever change we do or do not make. Also consider how the Lord's Supper will begin to shape your identity each time we take it together. Or better... How will the gospel that the Lord's Supper proclaims shape your identity further? How will you continue identifying with Christ's cross, with His self-giving love? How will you pursue attitudes that, that picture Christ's reconciliation of His people into one body? How will the proclamation in the Supper compel you to proclaim the death of Christ to your neighbor's and, your na- and the nations. What kind of witness will our gatherings offer the world? Will we be the alternative community where self-righteousness and racism and pride were crucified with Christ when He was cut off and where Christ becomes preeminent and His love transform us? That's what the world is supposed to see. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14... It talks about outsiders and unbelievers. They happen to gather with the church on Sunday. And one of the things the preaching of the Word does is that they fall on their face and say, surely God is in your midst. Surely God is in your midst. Can can unbelievers say that about us when, when they gather with us? Surely God is present among you. At the end of the day... What the Lord's Supper tells the world is that we're a gospel people. We're a Christ people. We're not a Republican people. We're not a Democratic people. We're not a Libertarian people. We're not an ethnocentric people. We're not a people gravitating toward a favorite hobby or sport or research interest. We belong to Christ's kingdom and we are a gospel people. We are a Christ people and we cannot forget that. That's what the supper is proclaiming. It's because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we pray together.